Washington Counting Paralyzer was one of those treasured gems that if you were fortunate enough to know a guy who knew a guy, you might be able to get your hands on. And if you did know a guy, you were really glad you did. So there's this guy named Harry. It's winter in Michigan, and he's out fishing with his friend, who happens to also be named Terry. The two Terriers are friends from way back. They both worked for GM, and they used to party. I mean, really party. While they were out fishing this past winter, those old parties were a topic of conversation. Specifically, the Terriers started talking about one rager they attended in 1979. It involved a large bag of cannabis that turned out to be so powerful that it caused one of the Terries to hit his head on a urinal. That was the first time the Terries experienced the strain known as Pinconning Paralyzer. And then one Terry says to the other, while out fishing, I still have the seeds. And those were magical words for Terry number two. I'm Jessica Shepard, and you're listening to a special Michigan Crime Stories series, Pinconning Paralyzer. Over the next several weeks, MLive reporter Gus Burns will unfold the stories surrounding the legendary strain of cannabis that is tied to a tiny Michigan town, and we'll see how it might be making a comeback in the now-legal world of recreational marijuana. Just a warning here that there is some adult language used in this episode, and, well, lots of talk about getting high. Here's Gus. In the late 1970s, simple marijuana seeds were planted in the sun-drenched farm fields of Michigan. No one knew they would soon become one of the most popular strains to ever come out of the state, Pinconning Paralyzer. After prohibition and time had its way with it, most thought Pinconning Paralyzer was gone forever. But hey, him and I were just bullshitting. And he said, hey, you remember that party when I went to the bathroom and fell down and hit my head? Yeah, you got too messed up. Because yeah, I was going to smoke that shit. And uh, yeah, old pig paralyzer. You know, I thought, I wonder what that shit would be like if we had it today. That's what he dumped it on me. He said, well, you remember the party? I said, yeah. He said, well, remember? I said, guys brought the bag of weed and threw it on the table so they rolled the joints out here? Yeah, yeah, I remember. He goes, well, they didn't clean up when they got done. He goes, so when I was leaving, because I was treasurer of the union, I didn't want to leave the seeds there, you know. Bad impression for the people coming in the morning. He said, so I... Cleaned it up. I scraped them all into a baggie. He goes, went home, took the baggie out of my pocket, put it in a baby jar, closed the lid on, put this toolbox, and that's where it's been since, since 1979. The person you just heard talking is Terry Laskowski, a Bay City man who worked at the General Motors powertrain factory in Bay City, Michigan, for a few years in the late 1970s. He's talking about some potentially very special marijuana seeds that survived for decades in the darkness of a working man's toolbox, following a party at a union hall. It was a time when good marijuana was hard to come by in Michigan. Most of what people smoked was low-grade ditchweed, at least that's how old-timers refer to it, stuff that people believe originated in Mexico. Producers dried it until it was brittle brown and riddled with seeds, before vacuum-sealing it into bricks that they smuggled across North America and into Michigan, by air, land, and sea. But then, people found out, Michigan is a great place to grow outdoor weed. In the 1970s and 80s, according to lore and accounts from those who grew it, 
a new strain of marijuana emerged out of a 1,300-resident rural farm town known as Pinconning, Michigan. This simple plant, a weed, has impacted countless lives. There are police who spent years searching for the source, children who lost their father to prison, and many who still remember the first time they smoked it, behind a church or the high school gym. Today, Pinconning is used mostly as a highway outpost, a gas stop along Interstate 75 midway between Detroit and the Mackinac Bridge that's long been known for its unique brand of Pinconning cheese. Although now, most of the milk farms are gone, and the cheese is now shipped in from Wisconsin. To this day, customers stop by to shuffle through the aisles of the several touristy cheese shops. But for nearly a half century, the town's biggest export, even if township officials or tourism promoters hesitate to admit it, has arguably not been cheese, but marijuana. Specifically, Pinconning Paralyzer, a coveted strain that rose to prominence in the 1970s. It was fresh, homegrown, abundant, and supposedly got you really, really high. I've interviewed dozens of people across the state in Pinconning and beyond. I've yet to come across someone who didn't know what Pinconning Paralyzer was, or at least heard of the name. Even teenagers I spoke to outside the Pinconning cheese shop recognized the name. We used to be known for cheese, but now it's for marijuana, they told me. Pinconning has embraced the legalized marijuana industry since 2018. Its farm fields and previously empty storefronts are filling with new marijuana retailers, processors, transporters, and growers. This isn't the welcome that Pinconning Paralyzer originally received. According to the current editor of the local paper, its previous owners didn't want to acknowledge Pinconning Paralyzer's existence in their pages. They felt it brought shame to the town. They didn't cover the busts related to it or its unavoidable rise in notoriety that stretches well beyond its namesake town. Current leaders have said they're eager for the legal market to bloom so Pinconning can shed its illicit marijuana past. There are no sales figures to confirm it, but based on most accounts, Pinconning Paralyzer reached its peak popularity in the 1990s. By the turn of the century, the feds had swooped in to put a stop to that. They made arrests, burned plants, seized property cash, guns, and homes. They put people in prison for doing the same thing that multi-million dollar corporations are doing today and doing with the government's blessing, growing pot and selling it. When police descended in the 1990s, Pinconning Paralyzer slunk further underground, but never entirely disappeared. Its lore never died. So why are we talking about Pinconning Paralyzer today, at least two decades after it peaked? That's because it could be making a comeback. When I attended Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant in 1995, I ended up in a dorm room with upperclassmen who sold weed on campus. I remember them taking road trips and coming back on Wednesday nights with rolled up paper grocery bags filled with weed. I guess it was a pound or two sometimes. And on occasion, I'd hear them mention it was pinconning paralyzer. I'm not an avid marijuana smoker or familiar with all the strains. I hear the names Gorilla Glue, Birthday Cake, Sour Diesel, OG Kush. But the one name I was surprised not to hear after I began covering Michigan's legalized marijuana industry and visiting dispensaries across the state was Pinconning Paralyzer, the one strain name I associated most with Michigan marijuana. I thought it would be interesting to work on a story about Michigan's most fabled underground weed. So I started with a source I go to for a lot of marijuana-related stories, Rick Thompson. He's a nice guy who's been involved with the marijuana industry since the days when growing and possessing it could land you in prison. I figured he'd know a thing or two. 
Tintani Paralyzer was one of those treasured gems that if you were fortunate enough to know a guy who knew a guy, you might be able to get your hands on. And if you did know a guy, you were really glad you did. Uh, and Conning Paralyzer was legendary in Michigan in the pre-legalization years uh, when there wasn't branding, when there wasn't advertisements, when no rap stars were rapping themselves in big butts on television. Uh, it was difficult to make a name for yourself then, and Conning Paralyzer was the most recognizable Michigan strain for decades. Uh, I have smoked Pink County Paralyzer. Back in the day, um, you you had very, very average cannabis, and then every once in a while you had an exceptional smoke. And Pink County Paralyzer was always an exceptional smoke. I remember it as being very heady. Uh, sometimes it would make me cough a little bit, but that uh, you would recognize the smell as soon as flame touched bud. Uh, it was distinctive. And, and you knew when someone was smoking paralyzer, and you, you ran right over to them to see if you could get a piece of that. Before there were caregivers, there were just people who loved growing cannabis, and they were very protective of their genetics. They wouldn't uh, like to share particular cuttings or seeds from their plants because they liked growing their strain and they wanted it to be theirs. That's one of the reasons why pin counting paralyzer remained a Michigan unique strain during all those times is because it was closely guarded and not shared. So that kind of exclusivity is what contributed to its legendary status. Do you think it's made its way to the commercial market or at least people maybe even knockoffs of it using the name? Well, it's not really like a copyrighted name, really. Well, you can't copyright the, the strain names, but I will say this. Remember I talked about how, uh, how jealously some growers guard their genetics? Yeah. Counting paralyzers always been like that. I would be very surprised if the original cultivator of Concounting Paralyzer gave that to the commercial market, but the possibility that people are using that name on different cannabis for marketing purposes is very high. As we hung up, Rick said he'd ask around and see if anyone else had some good insight about Concounting Paralyzer. Not long after, I received an email. It just said, quote, John Laskowski followed by his phone number. Within a day, I was in Bay City at a grow facility looking at little green plants purported to be the coveted Pinconning Paralyzer. It was a hot day in July. I pulled down a gravel driveway that leads to a cluster of burgundy pole barns in Bay City. One of them contains plants that are alleged to be Pinconning Paralyzer. As I enter from the main road, I pass another business, Dank on Arrival. It's one of the city's newer recreational marijuana retailers. There's a sign for a transmission shop that also operates on the property, surrounded by a handful of seemingly broken-down cars and boats. When I park near a small shed, there are two men who I'll later learn are employees. They're playing basketball. Out walks John Laskowski, an energetic and friendly weed guy with tattoos who runs Bullet Buds, the 1,000-plant grow facility I'm parked in front of. He invites me to come inside their break room. It's really a shed that he calls the hamster box. The walls are constructed from sheets of cedarwood. John Laskowski said that helps cover the smell of marijuana that he and his two employees frequently, quote, test inside. As we settle in, I sit on a church pew that was rescued from St. Hedwig's Catholic Church in Bay City. It belonged to John's dead mother. 
I'm offered a freshly grilled jalapeno hot dog that's sitting on a paper plate in the center of the coffee table. I decline the offer of a bun, but eat it with my hands. There's a TV playing and a blacklight, although the blacklight is turned off. The walls are decorated with a poster of Johnny Depp from Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Another framed picture is of Bigfoot, whom it declares the hide-and-seek champion of the world. There's also a psychedelic art print featuring marijuana and magic mushrooms that John Laskowski said his dad received from someone in the 1970s. It kind of gives you the fraternity house vibe, doesn't it? I mean, we don't go for that, but that's just what I remember from college. When I was in college, it's just got that. But uh, Or the stoner feel. I mean, we all are big potheads here. I mean, I got into this business as a, med a medical caregiver, and I believe in its medicinal purposes. But now that it's recreational, people can't deny that it isn't better than drinking. I mean, I go drink for a half a day, and I can't function for three days. I can smoke weed every day and be successful and operate and do what I need to do. John Laskowski is a married family man. He attended Northwood University in Midland, got a business degree, and worked in corporate America for 11 years. He was growing marijuana for medical patients as a caregiver on the side, until his dad, Terry Laskowski, decided he wanted to enter the marijuana industry. Terry Laskowski put up the money. His son handles the operations. The grow, coincidentally, received its license on April 20, 2020. Of pin conning paralyzer, John Laskowski said, I used to hear about it all the time. People would talk about it all the time, but I never ever in my, in my high school career remember smoking it. Now there's some guys that say it's still around today. And I've had guys come up to me and say, I can get you pin conning paralyzer clones. I said, well then please do. If you can get them, bring them to me. I'll grow them commercially. The clones never materialized, but something else did happen. John Laskowski's dad was hanging out with a fishing buddy an old auto worker friend who knew the Laskowskis were operating a licensed grow. The friend said he had some old paralyzer seeds that he'd tucked away after a party back in the 1970s. He wrapped them up in a Gerber baby food jar that was stowed in his toolbox for decades. The friend produced 150 seeds that he claims are from some of the original Pinconning paralyzer. When I first started with the seeds, I was given, I don't know, 60 or so. And I went through them, and I had to pick out the good ones because they're, the downfall is is a lot of the seeds, they dry out. Obviously, like I told you, the, the seeds are only good for, like, the best conditions, they say, five to ten years. And that's like you put them in a refrigerator or something because they're doing whatever. John Laskowski deferred to Google and searched, quote, how to bring dead seeds to life. That led him to putting old seeds into a matchbox with a piece of sandpaper and shaking them vigorously to scuff them up a bit. They were then plopped in a jar of sugar water. He waited until they sunk to ensure they soaked it all up. Eventually, some of them sprouted roots. John leads me from the hamster box into the summer heat, and we walk across the gravel lot to a nearby pole barn. We enter a white-lit office area. The two employees are now done with their basketball break and sitting at a table in the next room. They're watching Baywatch as they trim recently harvested buds. Masks depicting former presidents line the wall. It's, yeah, we have Obama, uh, Nixon, Kennedy, uh, Clinton, and Trumpster. John said they sometimes wore the mask when they showed off their marijuana in pictures posted to social media. We walk up a stairwell to our left. It's dark, warm, and windy with the whir of numerous fans. This is like the marijuana plant nursery. On one end of the room are taller, nearly five foot tall or so, mother plants. Their clipped and cloned offspring, now just a few inches tall, are on the opposite side of the room. 
Peconic Paralyzer, where are you hiding? Right here. Here's the, these are all get ready, so when I talked to you about earlier downstairs about clones, here's a set of clones. So there are 60 of them there. Of all the seeds John Laskowski scuffed and saturated, he ended up with six plants, two male, the other four were females. He separated the men and saved some of their pollen so that he can use it in the future for breeding or creating hybrids crossed with other strains. He took 15 clippings each from each of the mothers. So they'll all go into the room and then when we harvest, we'll, we'll keep them separate and we'll, we'll test all four to see what one's the best. Okay. And that one will be Will be the one that gets run. Yes. So That's you, the, the one that'll the go. That, the buds that come off this probably won't be for sale? Or yes. Will they, oh, they will. Okay. Yeah, it'll just, there'll be just four types of pink honey. It'll all be pink honey paralyzer, isn't it? It's just going to be four different phenos. You wouldn't know if you mixed it all together, mm. but we need to know as the grower to make sure we're providing the best mm -hmm. for what people want. So yeah. we, that's called pheno honey. Everybody knows what it's like. So we're going to wait and see what one's the best. And then that's why all four of them are living upstairs. The minute we find out what one's the best, the other three will get whacked. They'll just die off. Ground up in the grinder, mixed with paint, with ground up cardboard, which is what we do, and put in a bag and can. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. To think that that's how we destroy weed. Either that or a lot of people mix it with kitty litter. While there's sure to be some variability in the marijuana that John produces, he expects it to fly off the shelves based on name alone. People are excited. They want, they're, people want to see it come back. That's why we want to bring it back, because people want it back. Everybody wants it back. Like I said, if it's it's the holy grail of marijuana in Michigan. I mean, it's the it's the it's the folklore, the all that. I mean, it's if it's what if it's what everybody says it was from back then, then it should still be what it is. You know, I I would think that we're gonna people are gonna be really really happy with the product. They should. Uh, I would think that the guys who used to smoke it are gonna be like, yep. It's all, I mean, that's my dad's plan is he's like, I'll just, I'll know when I smoke it. Perfect. Because I need guys like you to be able to say it's right. What are you going to do if he says it's wrong? <laughs> I, I don't even, if it's wrong, then him and Terry got the wrong seeds because I didn't source no pink honey fertilizer seeds. It would have to be one of those two guys. After meeting with John Laskowski, I wanted to speak with his dad. The second link in the chain tracking back to the paralyzer seeds now growing in John's pole barn. Terry Laskowski, a Harley rider, hardcore fisherman, marijuana enthusiast, and mechanic turned entrepreneur who's run a transmission shop most of his life, proved difficult to pin down for an in-person interview. I eventually settled on a couple of phone calls. As of our last conversation, he'd just returned home from a couple-week fishing trip to Alaska that he takes annually with his buddies. Look at this 50 pounds I brought home. 30 pounds of halibut and 20 pounds of silver sand. One of those buddies was another man, also named Terry. That Terry is a former Bay City GM union official from 1979 when he claims to have snagged some pin counting paralyzer seeds after a union hall party. Both of the Terrys at that time worked second shift. They and their line worker friends would sometimes gather at the union hall when their shifts let off just before midnight to socialize. They'd play euchre, drink half barrels of beer, and smoke marijuana until past four in the morning. On this particular night, at this particular party in 1979, Terry Laskowski remembers a group of brothers came in and dumped a pile of pot on one of the tables. They let anyone who wanted some have at it. At the time, the guys growing it weren't that sophisticated, and their weed had seeds. 
This only happens when pollen from a male plant fertilizes a female. Usually, growers will identify and separate or kill the males before the reproductive process gets that far along, but they didn't back then. Terry's friend, the union boss, was picking up at the end of the night, and he decided to take some of those left-behind marijuana seeds home with him. That was his first experience with fertilizer. He had been drinking already, and he got so waxed out, he went to the bathroom, passed out at the urinal, plunked his head on the way down, come up bleeding like a stuck head. <laughs> That's how I can remember where them seeds came from, because of that incident. He said to me, well, you remember that party we had when I saw that? I hit my head, I said, oh, Jesus, how could I forget? I said, that was one the uh, the brothers brought that bag of weed, and he goes, you know, he says, I still have them seeds, and I almost fell over when he said it. I looked at him, and I said, you got to shit me. He goes, no, he said, I went home, I rolled them up, I put them in a baby jar, put them in my toolbox, they're still sitting there. I said, well, you bust those son of a bitches out, give them to me, and I'll see if I can get any of them to pop. In the next episode of this four-part Michigan Crime Story special about pinconning paralyzer, We'll learn more about the men who helped bring Pinconning Paralyzer to national prominence and dig into old court files that tell the stories of police stings and busts conducted in an effort to put them and Pinconning Paralyzer away for good. The main suspect ran out of the house a garbage bag full of marijuana and, and money, and as he's running down the road, the troopers are chasing him because they saw him, and money and marijuana is flying out of the bag. It looked like something for a movie. Um, and, and that's, you know, so that's where it kind of all started. Later in the series, we'll also rejoin John Laskowski as he harvests his first batch of revived, legalized pinconning paralyzer and find out if it's truly the real thing. And that's where we'll leave you for today. But make sure to subscribe to Michigan Crime Stories wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out on the rest of the Pinconning Paralyzer story. If you value quality journalists like Gus and the work they do, please consider becoming an MLive subscriber. And if you are looking for more podcasts to fill your days, head over to MLive.com slash podcasts. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>